we're trying to do is create the least amount of content that has the maximum amount of impact that we're trying to create. And so it is, in essence, very much like a golf game. You're listening to the Content 10X Podcast, where it's all about content repurposing. I'm Amy Woods, and I'm here to help you maximize your content and find smart ways to get your message in front of more of the right people, whilst also saving time. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Content 10X Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Amy Woods, and I have a wonderful guest on this week's episode. My guest is Robert Rose, and we're talking all about how to know when enough is enough with your content. And we also talk about measuring impact of content as well. Now to introduce Robert, for more than 25 years, Robert has helped marketing leaders balance the art and science of marketing and tell their stories more effectively. Over the last 10 years, Robert and his firm, The Content Advisory, have advised more than 500 companies, including 15 of the Fortune 100. Robert also serves as the Chief Strategy Advisor at the Content Marketing Institute, which he's done since its launch in 2010. And he has helped guide it to become the leading global content marketing education and training organization. Robert's also written three books on the topic of content marketing and his latest, Killing Marketing, with co-author Joe Polizzi, has been called the unlock to what marketing should be in the 21st century. It was an absolute pleasure to have Robert on the show. In this episode, we talk about why content marketers should approach content like a game of golf. We also look at how to know when enough is enough and the problem with a more, more, more approach. We discuss when it's time to move from being a content factory to having a more considered approach and also why setting objectives for your content is vital to success. Now, before I jump in, I want to mention that I had some technical difficulties during our interview and the result is that the audio might not be quite to the high standard that you're used to from the show. However, we've done a great job with what we have. It's a fantastic conversation and I'm sure you'll get so much out of this episode. It really is a fascinating one. Let's jump in. Robert, welcome to the Content 10X podcast. Oh, thank you, Amy. It is so great to be with you today. I'm 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 super excited for this. Um, I'm I'm really looking forward to the conversation. It's going to be fantastic. I know. <laughs> so I had a great time at Content Marketing World. I wanted to just get that in and let you know that it was um, fantastic. And thanks for putting on such a great event. Was it everything that you hoped it would be this year? It was and more. Um, I would say, you know, the I think you know the 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 first and most obvious aspect of it was that the fact we were all back together again and in person. I mean, it was just, it's it's kind of hard to understate or overstate rather how wonderful it was to actually get to, you know, see people and touch people, and you know, and actually be back together in person. And then, you know, this year, if I do say so myself, I really do think we outdid ourselves with the quality of the speakers that we had, because it was just a great, great show. And in a weird way, you know, the fact that it wasn't back, you know, we're not certainly back to the levels of attendance that we had, say, in 2018 or 2019. 
But that almost makes it better in some ways that, you know, that the crowd isn't so big, you know, that you, that you feel like you're going to have a chance to meet so many more people and that there's a little more intimacy, not to mention the fact that there's some elbow room, you know, in the convention center that, you know, you're not, you don't feel squished, which is definitely sensitive these days. But, you know, I just think all in all, it was just a wonderful you know, it was a wonderful way to sort of re reboot or re-kick things off, if you will. It was. It was fantastic. And, you know, I, I agree with everything that you just said. And certainly the quality of the speakers was was so high. I think being out there and going along to the talks, the, the challenge was where do who do I like forsake in order to go to another one? Because right. you know, it, it was nice. It was, I felt the right scale, I suppose, for coming back, like you said, and not quite to pre-pandemic, but then is that what we should strive for anyway? Because because it was, you know, felt just about the right amount of people to get to meet who you want to meet. And like you said, not be rubbing elbows too much and everything. So that's really good. So congratulations on a fab event. Thank you. (laughs) Now, I read an article that you published on the Content Marketing Institute site called Why You Should Treat Content Marketing Like a Golf Game. And I would really love to discuss that with you today because it resonated with me a lot, particularly the way that you, you know, compare it to golf and explain that you win in golf when you hit the ball the least amount of times or swing the club the least amount of times. And as content marketers, we should approach content in the same way. Please, could you explain, you know, a little more about that? Well, sure. You know, I mean, and the metaphor might be a little too cute, um, but, but the idea is, is that, you know, what fascinates me, and I'm not a golfer, by the way, I don't think I've ever played a round of golf in my life. <laughs> but I'm fascinated by the fact that the whole, the entire goal of golf is to play the least amount of it. Um, and, you know, you you are scored by how little you actually play. And there's such an efficiency there. And I, and, you know, I've heard golfers describe the idea as very, you know, it, it's a very Zen-like experience because what you're trying for is a real balance and efficiency in terms of making every shot a quality shot. And that is a wonderful and interesting way to approach a game, but it reminds me that it's such an interesting and wonderful way to approach the way that we create value with content. Because if you think about it, our goal, because you know, I have too much time and too much money said no marketing person ever, you know, so we have other things to do than to be creating more and more digital assets and throwing them out into the proverbial virtual ocean. Really, what we're trying to do is create the least amount of contact that has the maximum amount of impact that we're trying to create. And so it is, in essence, very much like a golf game where the content you're creating, hopefully, what you're doing is reaching into yourself to try and create, you know, as few pieces that have as big an impact as you possibly have. And by impact, I mean, whatever your desired impact is, whether it's, you know, selling something or educating someone or delivering value or entertaining or whatever your particular impact that you want to have that measures value. And so ultimately, if we're doing it really well, we're doing it really as infrequently as we need to or want to. And that to me, there's a real balance there of how we approach whether we're a solopreneur, a content creator slash influencer, or even a big business. 
the idea is how can we create as little as we can without, you know, with the maximum amount of impact that we want to create. I guess, why do you think it is that content marketing teams have that feeling that they are creating too much content? There's a very interesting dichotomy here, which is when we go in and do, you know, we spend our time, my consulting firm spends its time looking at usually larger businesses, but sometimes smaller businesses too. And what we usually find, and this is, I think, true, again, from that solopreneur all the way up through enterprise businesses, we usually don't find that they create too much content. What we usually find is that they create too many digital assets. And what I mean by that is that we naturally have this feeling as content creators that the, the, what we immediately leap to, and by the way, we're trained to do this, you know, at university, when we go into marketing or communications, we think container first and then content. In other words, the way that we approach content in business usually is something to the effect of, ah, I need an email. I need a white paper. I need a blog post. I need an ad. I need, you know, a, a book, whatever the container is. And then we go, great. How do we fill that full of content? And so psychologically, what that does to us, again, whether we're alone or in a team, is that it means that we have to think up lots and lots and lots of ideas. So our brains are, you know, sort of our activities go into this, fill lots of containers with lots of ideas because they have to be different. And so therefore, we feel like we have to continually produce more and more in order to meet the demand. And that puts a stress on the quality because we just, uh, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't have that many great ideas. And so we end up putting a lot of sort of mediocre or even poor ideas out into the marketplace knowingly, consciously, because we just have to fill all these containers full of things. And we sort of rationalize to ourselves that, you know, some of it will be great, some of it will be differentiated, but some of it is just stuff we need to produce because we have to fill channels. And that rationalization then bleeds into the business because what ends up happening is we start saying, oh, great, it's a great way to mitigate risk, right? You know, we'll be, you know, we just, if you throw enough spaghetti against the wall, some of it's going to stick and be tasty. And that mentality, what we've seen is it has to shift. And again, whether you're one person or a team of 100, you've got to start thinking about what's the story, what's the content first, and then a different process for once we've got that story, once we have that content, few little bits, now how many digital assets do we really need to be able to fill with that content? Because that's our opportunity these days, because, you know, filling containers is easy. Yeah, I, I guess I, I understand what you mean in terms of looking at if, if content is more the the overall idea, the message, the campaign or whatever, and then strategically organizing the digital assets to align with that message as opposed to, you know, just content being lots of digital assets, like digital asset after digital asset without really an overarching message or campaign. It makes sense. I loved what you said in the article. You said them when the content team provides a fire hose of content, there's too much waste, but everybody's thirst is quenched. But when the content team gives people a garden hose, less content gets unused, but everybody still feels thirsty. I like that analogy. It's basically similar to what you were saying, but the focus there is on the waste, isn't it? So there's the firehose concept. Yeah, yeah, there's lots of waste, but at least everyone's happy. But then you turn it down. Yeah, less waste, but people are saying, where's the, where's the content? So is this something that, you know, you see that this is happening? Yeah, this is the, this is the symptom of the too many ideas going into containers, right? Yeah. Because what, 
and this is true truer for uh you know larger organizations than maybe smaller ones but the 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 idea is is that for most businesses the content team that's creating that fire hose or garden hose is getting asked right they're, you know they're they're literally a, a vending machine of content and and so sales is asking for it executives are asking for it the demand gen team is asking for it the brand team is asking for it everybody's asking for and what they're asking for again remember is not content they're asking for digital assets right they're asking for blogs and in brochures and you know one sheets and and you know uh, all the different various kinds of containers that might be content and what they're getting because you know when they when they throw out the fire hoses of content from the from the team is lots of mediocre and poor ideas, right? And the thing is, they, they take all that and they go, yes, great. It, now my risk of throwing that to customers or throwing that out in my email campaign or throwing that out in my social media campaign or whatever it is, at least I've got fodder, right? At least I've got you know, stuff that I can put out and publish, you know, so I'm meeting my goals of putting out three social posts or putting out an email newsletter or putting out, you know, a web page or putting out, you know, a brochure to multiple customers or whatever it is. I'm getting stuff out there. And the thinking is if I have more, I've got more to choose from and a greater probability that some of it's going to stick with my campaigns. And so then when you switch that and you go, okay, well, the, the team is only going to give you a garden hose of content. Now, all of a sudden they're going, oh, you mean I have to rerun a piece of content twice in my social media campaign or I have to rerun, a, you know, and rerun an email campaign or no, I'm, I, I need more. I'm, I'm scared. You know, they, they, they get this real fear in them that the risk is going to be higher because they're putting more bets on fewer pieces of content. So they're still thirsty. and so. That makes the switch over that we just talked about this idea of switching over to a few big ideas expressed in multiple digital assets, you know, a little hard because it's a hard thing to tell somebody, you know, that, that needs all these digital assets. You know, what we're going to do is we're actually going to slow down the creation process, create a really big, wonderful, deep story. And then we'll tell it. We'll tell it across four infographics, three webinars, a white paper, and a, you know, whatever. And that, they get nervous, right? They get nervous about that. And so you've got to be able to make that change ultimately by giving, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you can't really show them that it will work until you actually do it. And doing it, actually, you have to show them how it's going to work. So it becomes a little bit of this catch-22 in terms of how do you put your content plan together and that's the real key is putting in that planning process, put, you know, taking the time to actually put in a planning process for your content. Yeah, I absolutely love and at that. And I agree with you completely. And it's it's kind of music to my ears in terms of you know what what we do at Content 10X, because I guess that's what we're all about and saying to our clients, which is, you know, that the kind of the less is more, but let's have, you know, a smaller amount of like you said, those like bigger thought through pieces of content with the plan for what that content is going to become. So it's it's a message that will be expressed via, like you said, the infographic, the video, the podcast, the social but it all comes from that bigger piece to begin with so i completely yeah. agree with you and it's and by the way it works just as well for you know so just i'll give you a, a quick example of this so my wife is a content creator and she was you know she was thinking about all the things that she wants to do on her social media channel and on her email newsletter and on her website and all these things and, and feeling a little overwhelmed by the amount of content she was going to have to create 
And she was thinking about it in that way, right? She was thinking, oh, I have to have an email newsletter and I have to have, you know, one a week and I have to have my social posts. I have to have three or four posts per week and I have to have, you know, something big to offer up on my website. And, and she's trying to do all of this. And I said, well, let's put together a content plan. Let's actually take the time to do a content plan. And we figured it out through, you know, just talking about what bigger story she wanted to tell and then organizing that. And I said, now... Now don't think about the email newsletter or the, you know, the blog or whatever. Now that you've got this story sort of outlined, write the story. Like whether it's five pages or 10 pages, just write the story and write it all out and write what you want to, you know, what you want to say. And maybe it's five or 10 or 15 pages or whatever it ends up being. Once you've got that done, now let's talk about how it might live. That story might live as an email newsletter as a series of blog posts, maybe, you know, two or three or five blog posts, maybe as a series of 30 different social tweets, maybe, you know, all of the different kinds of ways we could put elements of that content into multiple containers. Now you've created one story and exponentially more assets than you thought you would get. That's the that's the benefit of taking that time to put planning in. And that, you know, for those that push back and go, oh, it sounds like you're going to really slow me down. Yes, I really am going to slow you down in the creation process to exponentially speed you up on the production process. It's the smart approach, isn't it? It's the way that you should work and it completely makes sense. But I do, I, I you know, from the analogy you provided with the fire hose and the garden hose, I get the apprehension that some people would feel with that because like you said it feels like it might slow down but actually it's a much more efficient way to work and it's going to result in more cohesion with the messaging and the, the content and also just a better experience for the audience with less of a scattergun approach to the content that perhaps the approach was previously and yeah i loved it when your keynote address at content marketing world you talked about how businesses become so immersed in content that they you know don't really make sense of it anymore it's pervasive it's everywhere so it provides no major competitive advantage if the more, 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 more is the approach that people are going with because businesses are even building these internal content factories where the more approaches, what they see as the winning approach. But you, you know, quite rightly said that, you know, like better is the answer and it's not this drive for efficiency, but a drive to be different instead and, and better and following that kind of approach. Is there... I, you know, I know you work with loads of businesses. Is there a, a good example that you have of where a business has gone from that content factory more, more, more approach to actually different and, and moving and evolving with their content to, 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 to slow things down and have that different approach instead? Yeah. And the key there is that it's about, you know, the idea is, is that, and this is, you know, this can be, you know, when I say this line, it can be discouraging, right? Because what I say is, is that your content provides no, com no sustainable competitive advantage. It just doesn't, right? I don't, and it, you know, you think about anybody, right? Whether you're, you know, Marvel creating superhero movies or you're, you know, Gary Vee creating, you know, content on social media or you're a manufacturer creating content about widgets, none of what, none of the content that you create is going to give you any sort of competitive advantage over the long haul. Because guess what? Even if it does in the moment, it's going to get copied, right? It's going to get copied. It's going to get duplicated. It's going to get, you know, used and somebody will be better at promoting it than you and someone will be better at doing it. So ultimately your content itself is only a vehicle in the moment. It's only really valuable in that particular moment that you do it. What is the sustainable competitive advantage is 
the operations, the, everything we've just been talking about, sort of the, the process, the activities that you create and that are repeatable and they become habit for the company to create content at scale, right? And, and, to, and to play the golf game, to give yourself permission and the ability to play great golf which is what are the different activities that we do that normal people or normal businesses don't? A great example, just to your question, is Salesforce, right? Mm. So you look at what Salesforce is doing and, you know, at scale, right? They're a huge company, ginormous company. And they've created a streaming network called Salesforce Plus, which is, you know, going to rival Netflix and, you know, all of the, you know, streaming services. And they're doing B2B content on it, right? Which is, okay, you're going to do B2B content on a streaming platform. And here's the thing, the content itself, that's not going to give them any competitive advantage, you know, and anybody, by the way, can launch their own streaming network, you know, and the content can be found just about anywhere. It's all over YouTube. It's all over social media. It's all over other websites. You know, it's not exclusive for the most part, but that's not what gives them and that's not their goal. And that's not their sustainable competitive advantage. What really helps them is the fact that they treat content with a precious uh, function, a strategic function in their business. And they've slowed down the creation process so that they actually have processes in place and thinking about the creation and thinking about how to create fewer pieces across more channels and align all their different business units. And they put the thinking into those activities to make a Salesforce plus a streaming network even possible. And if you look at that and you apply it to someone, and I'll, I'll use my friend Joe Polizzi as an example of this, when they, you know, when he's created his little startup, you know, I mean, he's you know, basically, I mean, there, there are five, six people in there in his little company now for The Tilt, which is an email newsletter, and they're growing like crazy, you know, thousands of new subscribers. And, you know, he's got a little crypto coin. He's got, you know, he's a content creator. And it's not the content because honestly, his content for content creators is, yeah, it's fine. It's good. It's not, you know, it's, it's, it's great content, but it's not different than you're going to find it anywhere else on the web, right? It's not that different. But what really differentiates him and gives him that competitive advantage is the fact that the processes they put in place for their editorial strategy, the way they create content, the way that they, you know, facilitate their community, doing it thematically and doing it in an integrated way so that the community is aligned with the editorial strategy and the editorial strategy is aligned with the content creation and, and the, you know, the t-shirts that they sell and the events that they do and the way, you know, the way that they organize themselves, that's what gives him competitive advantage. He operates like a media company and that operation is what ultimately provides the differentiated value. And so whenever I talk to a content creator, I always say, don't think so much about your content. You're going to do that anyway, right? You're going to obsess over what it is you're putting out into the world. Instead, where I want you to put a little more focus and attention is on the habits that you're building, on the processes that you're creating, and how you repeatably create that over time so that you can basically do all the things that you need to do. And that's, I think that's the real difference. And do you find that in some organizations, because I guess what you're saying is it's it's that like helicopter view, a more strategic view of how it all fits together and how it's all going to kind of, you know, come together. Do you find that sometimes that's missing, that it's the teams are getting too stuck in the weeds, I suppose, and there's, is there a missing role in, you know, those plus obviously have maybe certain roles within their content operations that run that view and lead that view in that strategic level thinking that, maybe just doesn't exist in some of some organizations and perhaps it should. 
Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, it's absolutely difficult. Um, because, you know, it's like that old, you know, I mean, I'm sure you've done this. I know I've done it a million times where someone tells you to delegate something. And what you do is you rationalize to yourself and you say, oh, it'll just take me too long to teach this person how to do it. I'm just going to do it myself. And, and so what we do in content creation is we go, oh, it'll take too long to set up that process and, you know, and think that through and set up that governance and set up that, you know, strategy and take that much time for planning. I'll just create more content, right? And so because it feels easier in the moment to just have more ideas than it does to say, you know what, let's just take a step back and see what we should do and how we should do it. it I struggle with it. I struggle with it every week. You know, I have a podcast that I do every week. I've got my email newsletter and article that I have to write every week. I'm a guest. I'm a weekly guest on another podcast every week. I write a white paper at least two a month. You know, there. I mean, I'm producing a lot of content, but what I've successfully been able to do is to back out and look on a monthly basis and go, what's my theme going to be? Therefore, it gives me the fodder for the four articles, you know, that I have to write, the podcast show that I have to do, my guesting on another podcast, my white papers that I'm going to be writing. And thinking that through every, you know, taking literally a few hours every month just to sit down and write it all out and sort of plan it is so worth it because it just makes everything else go smoother. And to the extent that I have people come up to me and go, wow, you produce so much content. It's like, I actually don't. I actually don't produce that much content. What I do now is I actually produce it a little bit of content in a lot of places. Hey, just a little break from this week's episode to let you know about becoming a content 10x insider. If you want more content repurposing tips and advice, then why not join hundreds of business owners, marketers, and content creators who get them delivered straight to their inbox once a week by subscribing to the content 10x newsletter. As well as tips and advice, you get industry updates, inspiring stories, exclusive content offers, and more. You can subscribe at content10x.com forward slash newsletter, and there's a link in the show show notes too. Okay, back to this week's episode. We have exactly the same approach as well. So I, I completely agree with you. And it just it just makes sense to have that approach. It's not always kind of easy at first, but then it makes the whole process so much more straightforward. And like you said, you know, more content across the different platforms. And I, I think when we talk about this whole concept of more isn't the answer. So creating enough like that allows you to win. So how little can you can you create to achieve the measured impact that you want to have? That's just something I wanted to jump over to, like measuring the impact. So knowing when enough is enough is probably quite a difficult question. Like how do you know when <laughs> right? enough is yeah. enough? I, I love something that I've heard you say, which is that so measurement by impact. So instead of saying, well, we'll commit to this amount of content and churn it out, how much content could we create that will result in desired results? So 10% more leads every month or something like that. Like the sound of that approach, do you see that work and what kind of goals are measurable when it comes to content that you see working that way with content being quite a long game and results coming in over the days, weeks, months and years and things like that to um, to know when enough is enough through measuring impact? You know, the, the, the biggest gap that I find there is, you know, and I've written on this before as well, which is what we don't do and this is both business and content practitioners, is set objectives. In other words, 
what we don't do is set agreed upon what the, what the agreed upon objective is going to be for our program. Usually, it's you know our objective is as much as possible. You know, and I put that in quotes, right? I mean, it's like how many leads would you want? As many as we can, right? How many? How much traffic would you like? As much as we can possibly generate. How much SEO would you like to drive? As much as possible, right? And with with those as our quote unquote objectives, it becomes impossible to succeed because you've not established what good is. And then when you start applying things like budget or anything like that, which ultimately does have an impact, right? So when we assign budget, it definitely affects how much content we can create, how what the quality of that content is going to be from a production standpoint and so on, and how much distribution we can afford to pay for and all of that sort of thing. And so it becomes an impossible measurement because you don't know if it's the expensive stuff that's working or the cheap stuff that's working because you're not really measuring the cost very well because you don't have a good process for that. You don't really know what the impact is because you don't really have any set objectives for what the impact should be or what you're trying to achieve, you know. And so ultimately, measurement becomes really difficult. And where we see measurement becoming a much more practical idea is to say, okay, I have objectives, the platform that we're working on has objectives, our team has objectives, and here's what we're demonstrably saying is good. Like this is, you know, in one quarter, we want, like to your point, we want to generate 10% more leads in the next quarter. Great. Let's define what 10% more leads really means. Let's what, you know, what monetarily and or from a definitional standpoint, let's, what does that mean? That becomes our objectives. Now we can start to say, great, what are the, you know, what are the key results that we need to understand that we've met that objective? Because there may be multiple, right? The leads need to be, you know, the number of leads needs to be achieved, but also they need to be achieved at a certain price point and they need to be achieved at a certain quality. So we may have three or four key results that match up with that complete objective. And then we can start saying, great, now what are the KPIs, the key performance indicators that let us know day by day, hour by hour, month by month, that we're actually reaching the key results, which will indicate that we're reaching the ultimate objective. Putting together a plan like that means commitment. We have to commit to these objectives. We have to commit to these key results and we have to commit to these things and not change them willy-nilly as we move along. And that's one of the biggest challenges we see in content marketing is the goalposts move, right? We just, you know, they're constantly moving, right? Because we've not set any standards. So everything feels like a goal. Oh, we're getting great. We're getting great traffic. So, well, we're getting more traffic. So that becomes our key result, right? It becomes, you know, we're getting more traffic. Does that mean anything? No, it doesn't mean anything to the CEO. It means something to us, but it doesn't mean anything to the CEO. So we have to define those objectives and get agreement on what they mean before we can actually set up a measurement plan. And and do you find that quite often there's just too many goals that are or too many KPIs that people try to measure as you mentioned you know there's the business KPIs that you know the board and the leadership team are going to be more interested in revenue and, and sales directory free content whereas at a lower level you might be saying well KPIs are uh, engagement on LinkedIn and uh, Instagram followers and things like that there's there's a, there's a lot of different KPIs so is it is it that sometimes it's over managed or do you still see totally. more of the gospel? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. 100%, right? I mean, it, that gets to the, you know, every KPI is a good KPI, right? You know, we have so many things we can measure, so we do. And, you know, but 
your point is such an excellent one because it ultimately gets to some people go, oh, you know, engagement on social media, that's the vanity metric. It's like, no, it's not if you if you assign it meaning. Right. If you if there's a if there's a genuine business benefit from the engagement on social media that you all agree is a good thing for the business, then it's not a vanity metric. It's actually a meaningful KPI, you know, or traffic, you know, traffic is sometimes seen as a vanity metric because it's like, oh, you're just getting more traffic, but none of it's actually doing anything on your website unless it matters. For some businesses, traffic really does matter because it represents reach. It represents awareness of your brand or your solution. And so it can actually be a very meaningful metric if you if if you want to assign it such. But what we don't do is we don't assign those KPIs to any meaningful objectives. And so then you do overreach, right? You Then you start to, you know, you just fill up your shopping basket full of KPIs, right? No, social media engagement plus, you know, shares plus traffic plus conversions plus email newsletter subscribers plus all the things. And as long as all the graphs are going up and to the right, everybody's happy. But it really doesn't matter unless we've assigned meaning and by the way, gotten agreement on that meaning, right? We can we can believe that they mean all they want, but if our boss or the CEO or the CFO or whoever it is that matters, if they don't agree, then it doesn't matter if we win the game because they won't see the game as worth playing. Yeah. I, I can see the quandary there and it's a, it's a challenge, isn't it? And, and, and what about the less qualitative measures? Like you said, if it can be measured, let's just throw it in there as a KPI because we can measure it. Um, but then there's the, well, sorry, the more qualitative, so the less quantitative measures, but those that are more challenging to put numbers to because they're not necessarily attributed in that way. But do you, you know find that it can be challenging in that regard that they sometimes get overlooked? It absolutely can be, but it's the same process, right? It just- just you have to set objectives and get agreement on those objectives with the people, you know, that matter, you know, all business businesses with one person or businesses with, you know, 100,000 people are the same. They're just groups of people working together for a for a common cause. And for non qualitative things like, you know, brand awareness, or, you know, you know, uh, affinity brand affinities is a common one, right? Those are all things that can be measured to a certain degree. And, you know, I mean, emotion is a very difficult thing to quantify. But, you know, so, you know, my brand affinity for a particular brand might be, you know, you know, if we if I enumerated it at a six, and somebody else, it might be a 10. But my six might be actually their 10, right? And so, but what you, you can start to do is just get agreement on those non- you know, quantitative or more qualitative measurements, and then start to agree on great. Our objective is this qualitative thing, brand affinity, or, you know, intimacy with our customers or customer relationship or net promoter score, or whatever those things are. And we can come up with a series of KPIs that indicate, again, key performance indicators that we're meeting that objective. And I'll give you an example of this. I worked with one company where their whole goal was to engage investors. They're a financial services company, and they were trying to engage investors to invest more, right? In other words, these are already people who are invested in the mutual funds and the hedge funds and all the things that the company manages. But the whole point is, is to engage them with blog content and webinars and thought leadership so that they invest more. So how the heck do you get that more trust and measure that as an attribute of the blog content. 
And the way they decided to do it was to measure it based on trust. They said, if we develop more trust with our audiences, we believe that that indicates deeper investment, more investment in our in our various you know financial products. And so what they did was they just started measuring every year they did a survey of the general populace of financial advisors, populace of their competitors, financial advisors, and then the populace of their blog subscribers and webinar subscribers. And they, you know, they literally asked, how much do you trust us on a scale of one to 10? And they, you know, they noticed that, you know, in year one, they may have maybe ranked 18 or 19 out of 20. And then in year two, they ranked like 13 or 14. And then by year three, they were like eight or nine. And they're like, so it's working. Things are working with our content. They're deepening, our subscribers are deepening their trust with us over time as they're exposed to our content. We all agree on that. It's meeting that objective, even though it's like, all right, really deepening trust, you know, an eight or a nine versus, a, you know, you know, ranking them really, you know, and so as long as you have agreement with the rest of your business colleagues about what those numbers and tests mean, then it's qualitative or quantitative, right? You know, you just have to set, you know, in the whole concept of OKRs, the idea is the objectives have to be unambiguous. And when we say unambiguous, it means that everybody agrees on what they are. That's so interesting. Yeah, I mean, if, when you first said, you know, trust, you kind of think, wait a minute, how are they going to measure trust? But it, like, yeah, that survey, ask, you know, like get the same results, ask the same questions year on year and build your own way of developing that KPI that's most important to you. And yes, really, really interesting story. And I know you've talked before about how uh, there's been a decline in sort of trust and, and truth and companies that just share their core values and have have a plan for creating content that is going to ultimately improve that factor. It has an impact on everything on the investment the company will get, whether people will be willing to be employed by you, whether buyers will buy from you and everything. So, you know, creating that kind of measurement trust through that approach is like really, really interesting. So what a great example. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Final question I, I have for you, Robert, is you talk about how people it's not that people have short attention spans anymore it's that people just don't have much patience anymore and they yeah, right they want to have good content and we're, we're in a world at the moment where you know platforms are really good at actually putting the good content in front of us they know what we want and they'll put good content in front of us you know thus like our patience is is there and we spend hours on platforms that we didn't intend to what would you say is like just one tip for trying to work with that system then of making sure that your good content is going to find your your patient audience that are willing to consume your quality content. So I would point to two things, which one is very tactical. And the, the very tactical thing is stop burying the lead. So much of what gets, I mean, and, and you've all experience this. I, Amy, I'm sure you've experienced this, right? You read an article, you do a search on Google, and maybe you're searching for, you know, the top 10 moments on Game of Thrones or something, right? You know, you're doing a search and then you read an article and the first 
40% of the article, you know, maybe it's 1500 words or something or 2000 words. And the first 40% of it is just restating everything, right? And it's so clearly for search engine optimization purposes, right? It's like, you know, let me tell you about Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones was a series that started in 2013. And when it started, it was started by these particular showrunners. And when it started, it was about Game of Thrones. And Game of Thrones started, it was all about TV shows about a fantasy world called Westeros. And when it started, you know, basically just restating and restating and restating and restating, and you've written it for Google search. And so much content is like that these days where you're just like, uh, YouTube content. Think about that, right? You watch this YouTube video and you're like, you can, you know, you can skip to like a minute and a half or two minutes into the video because they're not getting into the meat until they get through all the stuff. And the point being, get in, do it, you know, really just dig in right away and really get to the meat and the differentiation of your content right away. That's my first tip, I guess, very tactical tip. The second is more about reach and how do you find those audiences? And one of the keys that I have seen is that I'm a big believer in not trying to chase audiences. Um, unlike, you know, Gary Vee is famous for, for recommending this. Basically, you need to be on every channel. You need to be on Instagram. You need to be on TikTok. You need to be on Twitter. You need to be on Facebook. You need to be on all these channels to chase your audience because they're all there and you need to figure out a way to engage them all there so that you can do things with them. And I don't believe that. What I do believe is that you can use those channels to pull people into the channels that you want them to reside in. If you think about all the great, you know, case studies of content marketing, whether it's print magazines or a blog or on, you know, a you know, something like Cleveland Clinic where it's a, a health library or whatever it is, most of them have employed this idea of using social media, using paid media, using external channels to promote their product, right? To promote their platform and to bring the audience to them like moths to a flame. And so that to me is the way to start to think about reach with your content is to look at your content platforms like your products. They're as important as your product and promoting them and pulling people into them will be much more effective for you over the long haul than trying to build little outposts all over the web on different social media channels that are going to ultimately, you know, fail you anyway. So I guess that's my biggest piece of advice is to use external media as the means of pulling an audience into your platforms that you treat like products. Oh, fantastic. Thank you. Really good advice, tactical and strategic and just awesome advice. So thanks, Robert. That was really good. It's been such a good conversation. I've said before we hit record, I I knew I could talk for a very long time to you. I'd say, we need to wrap it up. So, Robert, where would you like uh, people to connect with you? Sure. Yeah. I'm so happy to connect with anybody on LinkedIn. I'm literally a search away uh, <laughs> on, on LinkedIn. And please, happy to connect with everybody there. Twitter, of course, as well. That's the, you know, now that Elon is making things interesting with Twitter, it's it, it might be a little fun to connect there. I do enjoy the platform, though. Um, and then, of course, our little website is contentadvisory.net, where you can see more of our thinking and stuff. Contentadvisory.net. Fantastic. I will make sure yeah. that we have links to all of that in the show notes. So that's awesome. Well, thank you so much, uh, Robert. It's been such a wonderful conversation. I'm sure the listeners have got lots from it. So thanks for coming on the Content 10X podcast. A pleasure. 
Okay, so I hope you enjoyed that discussion and thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoy the Content 10X podcast, then why not hit that subscribe button on your podcast listening app of choice so that you can get updated when new episodes are released. And I'd really, really appreciate it if you could leave a review as well. That really makes a difference for the podcast. Also, please do get a copy of my book, Content 10X, More Content, Less Time, Maximum Results. It is the ultimate guide to repurposing every type of content. And it's available on Amazon, in Kindle and paperback, and also in audiobook as well. And you can head to content10x.com forward slash book to find all the other places that you can get a copy of my book. And if you would like us to do your content repurposing for you, then we offer a fully end-to-end done-for-you content repurposing service. This is for podcasters and video content creators. We have our podcast 10x, video 10x, and also our specific LinkedIn 10x service, helping you to become the leading authority in your industry on LinkedIn. You can find out so much more about our services on our website. And also please do give me a follow on the social media platforms. I share lots and lots of tips and advice on social media about content repurposing. I'm at Content 10X on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. And if you try content10x.com forward slash LinkedIn, you'll find my LinkedIn profile over there as well. All that's left to say is thank you so much for listening to this week's episode and I'll catch you in the next one.